and welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host, Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight, this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. I'm delighted to introduce Natasha McIntyre-Hall onto Women in Confidence. Natasha is driving a multi-billion pound, which is an awful lot of money, modern sustainable transformation agenda aimed at making Portsmouth Britain's premier waterfront technology and innovation city. With a reputation as one of the UK's foremost young programme managers, Natasha is currently touring high-profile international events as a keynote speaker and panel member, showcasing her groundbreaking approach to regeneration. So uh, welcome, Natasha, and thanks very much for joining me on Women in Confidence. Um, glad to have you here. So we're going to start with a, probably a relatively simple question and probably get asked all the time. But what is a regeneration specialist? Because there'll be people who are listening and think, what on earth is that? Oh, I know. And it's one of those things that if you Google, everyone in every industry thinks they're a regeneration specialist. <laughs> um, a regeneration specialist in my field is where we look at extending town centres and uh, regenerating bits of the built environment. So generally, I spend my time designing uh, cities and add-ons to city extensions and looking at how we can best use the assets that we've currently got. And you call yourself the mindful regenerist. I do, yeah. Yeah, I call myself the mindful regenerist because... I mean, the word's quite trendy at the moment anyway, but it does sum up the fact that I think that we can do things better. And I think we need to put more thought into the way that we do things rather than doing things the way that we did it last time. And so that's why mindful. There are some decisions that we've made for a long time that are good decisions, but we need to make sure that we go back and check that they are. So again, mindful. And so can you give me an example of something that you've worked on that you would class as mindful? Uh, I'll tell you about it's a proper plug as well though um, the biggest project I've got at the moment is one called Lennox Point feel free to google away it's um, if I do say so myself it's epic um, it is three and a half thousand residential units it's 58,000 uh, square meters of marine and maritime employment so just to put that in perspective that's kind of 57 hectares of land that we are looking to redevelop. This is huge, but why it's mindful is because it's on a piece of land that is contaminated. It's been used as a shooting range. It's been used for storing boats during the World War II, but we have changed everything around and we've put the people front and center of everything that we do. This is a development like no other. It will change the way that people live their lives. And fundamentally, what we've done is taken away the cars. Because when we started to think about the way that people move and interact, we found out that there were a lot of things about the way that we currently live that give obstacles to connection rather than enabling connection. So an example of this is when you think about a typical journey. So pre-COVID, my typical journey in my village was I walked out of my front door, I walked the 10 seconds to my car and then I got my car. And I either took my car into work or I took it to a train station to carry on my journey 
either way, the interaction with my actual community was about 10 seconds. Now, if you plot that same journey for somebody who lives in an apartment in the middle of a city, it may well be that they walk out of their front door into a sort of sterile environment. They go into a lift down to a lobby where it's still a sterile environment they have no ownership for. And then they walk out and they walk out onto the curtilage of a road or into a car park. So suddenly they've walked out of their own little safe space through this sterile unknown place into something threatening. Now, that is not the right way to start every single journey that you do. And so we aim to change that. So during COVID, um, after lockdown and all of that, my journey in my village changed completely because I started using the fruit and veg shop. I started using the local amenities. And the more that I walked to these places, because they were only five, ten minutes away, the more that I walked, the more that I passed things and familiar faces and started up conversations. And it took time to really understand what was going on. And then I started to become integrated into my community. So I feel strongly that developers have a responsibility to design places that allow for connection. There are so many people, but again, look at COVID, so many people living on their own. Well, what are we doing to make sure that the space they sleep in is not the whole world? Their community starts from their front door. So what are we doing? So by taking away cars, we also took away curbs. And without realizing it, curbs are just horrendous things that separate people and <clears throat> dictate the route that you take for places. And suddenly that brings back main connection. So by allowing people to walk out their front door into public realm, they have these opportunities to move around. And I really, I know this isn't all about the project, but I just want to tell you a couple, two other things that we did, which are, which are, or we're doing, which are absolutely awesome. We've stepped all the buildings back so that everybody has access to all water. There's no private ownership of the seafront. Um, and we then have also created sensory and um, seasonal routes so that you, there's not just one route you take somewhere, but, you know, in February, you might go around one route because the um, maple, uh, because the uh, cherries in blossom and you might go another route in the autumn because the maples are out and the leaves have changed colour. Also looking at like rain gardens and grasses that make noise so that people who may have autism or be visually impaired have a way of identifying where they are in the scheme. And the thing that has kept us going really from the start, we, we were wedded to this vision right from the very beginning. But one of the things that really kept us going is one of our early public consultations, a chap came and spoke to us, he was paraplegic. And he said to us, if I lived here, I wouldn't need carers. And it was just mind blowing that we could have just through our job that we could make that much of a difference to the way that people live their lives. So that's a really, really long answer for what is mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you. But I was just thinking while you were talking, you you talked about some pretty challenging and controversial topics. One is curbs, but one, the most important one for me is getting rid of cars. Like mm -hmm. how, how did that conversation go? When I'm set on something, I don't think I'm terribly good at listening. <laughs> 
so I've, there's been quite a few people who said that they've got problems with it but um actually when i suggested it in the first place the scheme's been kicking around for about 30 years and it's never stacked up financially by taking away the cars suddenly you change the dynamics of it and you can bring buildings into more of a human scale when you do that actually the viability changes so um there is an ability to basically be able to tell people that by taking out cars i was making it more financially affordable so yeah, you, you're talking about uh, getting rid of cars, and that's quite a confident conversation to you. To bring it back to the, the topic of this podcast, that's quite a bold statement because mm-hmm. British people, Australians, Americans, whoever it is, are quite wedded to their cars. Not necessarily how did the conversation go, but how did you prepare yourself to have those conversations? I really wish I had a better answer than this. I believed it was true. So I said it. I I like to get excited about these things. So obviously I've tested it out with the team first and said, this is what I want to do. And the first time the architects came back, they didn't take me seriously, actually. And they drew something. And I'm not very good at being tough, but I threw out their first plan and was like, no, that's that's not what I said at all. And after that, I think people started realising I was really serious. This is a vision. And I can understand their scepticism, to be perfectly honest, especially coming from the council. It's quite radical. Um, but, yeah, after that, um, then I started having advocates. And the same when we go out to the public with public consultation, they are so excited. You know, when you go shopping, you can choose to go to shop organic. You can choose to go plastic free. It's very difficult to choose a whole different way of living your life. And that's what this offers people. And that's, I think, seeing that I can make a difference. For me, it's it's all about legacy. Um, I want to do something to improve the lives for others. So I believed this was the right thing to do. And I've got other schemes that also have an ethos right at the very beginning of it, which is really unusual for the built environment of choosing what you want this to achieve before you then design it. But I believe these are the right things to do. And so I get quite protective. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about your entry into the built environment space. How did you get into this line of work? Oh, by mistake. (laughs) I, uh, so I have a master's in pure maths. Uh, I then got very sick and um, needed to have a kidney transplant. And whilst I was waiting for that, I trained as a maths teacher, knowing that people would always need maths teachers. And then I had my transplant. I raced horses for a bit and then decided that I probably ought to start using my brain properly. And then I fell into project management and I've just, I'm naturally nosy and bossy. So it suited me down to the ground. And I was asked to come in and teach project managers the algorithms behind project management. And I just naturally fell into big schemes because I've got quite a strategic brain. And so really since day one, I've dealt with schemes over a hundred million pounds at very early stages. And that's what I love. And you talked earlier about a team, you said uh, run things past the team. Can you just help the audience understand who are the team and what size is the team okay so I have many teams I'm spoiled for teams so I have the team that I am the manager of who are the ones that I have to do the everyday line management 
and they have their own individual teams underneath us. Um, at the moment, we're a team of 22. We're still growing. We've been growing. I've been there for three years and we've been growing nonstop. Each one of those people runs a project and that project then has a team of consultants that do the design. So Lennox Point is the biggest project we've got. It's somewhere around about £1.5 billion to build out in the end. We have a team of three dedicated staff within the organisation who run it. And the consultants, there's probably about 60 of them. And then if you replicate that, I have four large regeneration schemes on the go at the moment. And then we have about 15 smaller individual developments as well. Okay, so huge team, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... uh, yeah, depending on which conversation you're having at which time, yes. <laughs> so I'm just going to go back to something you raised, and this has really piqued my curiosity, because you said you're naturally nosy and bossy. Now, bossy mm-hmm. sometimes gets mixed up with confidence, or but mm-hmm. in the negative connotation. So just help me explain how you would describe yourself as bossy. Well, I say nosy and bossy simply because um, it always gets someone to smile, but for bossy, what I mean is I'm not scared to make a decision. I firmly believe that making decisions is the best thing you can possibly do, even if they turn out to be wrong, because it's about impulsion, it's about moving forwards. You make a decision and then you go from there and then you can always revisit that that decision at some other point if it turns out that it was wrong but if you don't make a decision then you end up with too many wishy-washy answers and you end up with something that is it just it lacks soul it lacks decisiveness it lacks that real uh, raison d'etre um so for me making decisions is really important so I've just never been afraid to make them I've also never been afraid to be wrong in a work environment at home terrible but um at work (laughs) work I'm not scared to be wrong but someone's going to have to prove that I am wrong and when you're challenged either publicly or just on a one-to-one what's your natural reaction my natural internal reaction is uh obviously very different to my natural external reaction of um a slight smile and a nod um, no, I I listen to everyone because the ideas that I try to come up with are not the normal. Everyone has a valid point of view. And it's about figuring out whether or not that's something that is helpful or something that is not helpful. Um, there's the whole idea about um, brainstorming and there's no such thing as a silly question and all of that lot. And My favourite story about brainstorming was about trying to figure out how to get the snow off the telegraph wires in Canada. And someone piped up with, well, you know, couldn't we use the bears? And if you had been in a normal meeting, imagine how many people would have laughed and turned around and pointed at that person and been like, well, that's a ridiculous idea. But the facilitator, rather than doing that, was saying, okay, well, tell me how how exactly would that work? that person sort of growing in confidence a bit was like, well, you know, bears scratch on those poles. And when they scratch on the poles, they wobble. And that gets the the snow off the cables. Okay, well, how can we, you know, how could we encourage them to wobble the poles? It's like, well, you couldn't really encourage them to scratch. Maybe we could encourage them to climb. Well, how would you do that? 
well, we can put food on the top of the telegraph pole so they have to climb up them. Well, how would we get the food up there? Well, we could use a helicopter. And that's what they use now to blow the snow off the telegraph cables is helicopters. But it's it came from a conversation about bears. Now, I'm sure there's a poetic license in there somewhere, but I love that story. And I love the idea that you should follow chains of thought, trains of thought. You should you should ask questions and figure out where people are going, because quite often in a big environment, when people say something, they are trying to say a safe version of what they're thinking. And so it's up to, in this case, me to find out what it is that's driving their thinking and to encourage them to say it out loud. It's also my job as a leader to defend the team and the ideas that are there to make sure they are in as little risk as possible to allow them to be keep being creative. So quite often we will get someone saying to us, well, if you can't park your cars outside my house, I wouldn't live there. Well, then don't. There are lots of other places that you can park your car outside your house, live there. And so it's that balance of listening and encouraging with protection. And what would you say to people who are listening who might comment, well, I don't want to step up and ask the awkward question because I don't want to feel stupid or I have a suggestion or a question but everyone else seems to get it and it's only me. What's your tip for people who are in that position? Firstly, if you're thinking it, someone else is thinking it, or if you're thinking it, it's worth saying because it might be that no one else is thinking from that side. Your voice is always important in a room and having the courage to speak up can be quite daunting sometimes. For years, I used to start my... Uh, musings with this might be so stupid but and I after I've been doing it for about a year an architect I really really respected said to me Natasha no one has ever said that anything you've said is stupid can we just drop it now and it was a real revelation to me but yes at that point I stopped saying this might be stupid but however the tip for other people I suppose is check with the person you're sitting next to you know, nudge them and just be like, well, I thought it was going on the left-hand side. And see if they, because they might be able to say, oh, actually, no, it was moved over to the right because of X, Y, Z. Or they might go, yeah, no, I know that was confusing me too. In which case, you then know that there's two of you and you can speak on behalf of someone else. And usually, particularly for women, we speak very well on behalf of someone else and not so well when we're speaking for ourselves. So speak for someone else speak for the end product the end user that you know that's in Lennox point that's what we've got the person at the end is the person who's living there those are the lives we're trying to improve speak for them and do you think you speak well for yourself (laughs) it depends in what circumstance but generally yes but it's taken a lot of time and practice and I still feel silly before I say stuff sometimes and I have to check the audience as to whether or not I'm about to make a fool of myself in a big environment (laughs) or a small environment but again I feel a huge responsibility as a leader to make sure that 
I'm putting myself out there. And even if it is something silly, well, why shouldn't I say it just because it's silly? You know, it's still something that's going around my head. So if it can add something to the conversation, then it needs to be said. And you speak at big events. Is it different, the size of the room? Does it make a difference to you on how confident you feel? No. I mean, I do sometimes get a little bit nervous before I go up on stage when it's a packed audience. But generally speaking, no. Yeah, I get nervous when there's a packed audience. But generally speaking, I I don't get too nervous before speaking because I believe in the content. Uh, I spoke the other day at an event with a couple of hundred people and it's just nice to get the message across. And when there's question and answering uh, answers at the end, people asking questions and knowing what you're talking about and they're relevant. And then you feel like, you know, you, then you feel like you're opening up a dialogue. And I think that's just the best thing for me is people going, oh, okay, I get it. But what if, and the what if questions are usually the best. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I'm quite passionate. I'm quite soapboxy. So give me an audience and I will take full advantage of that. And I imagine when you're working with many contractors, councils, the general public, there's quite a bit of disagreement and challenge. How do you cope with challenge or confrontation? It kind of depends on the setting. First of all, confrontation usually comes or usually gets bad when people feel like they're not being heard. So I go back to the bit at the beginning. It's important to to interact with someone when they come up with an idea. Don't say no. Let's say why. Let's look at it and let's try and understand it. And if there's nothing in there that's of any use, then, you know, for a start, that's rare. But that's okay. But you've explored it. That person has been heard and now they understand why they might have been going off in slightly the wrong direction. I mean, we have confrontation all the time with people who think ideas are not right or they're not affordable or they're not this, they're not that. Project management for me is all about smoke and mirrors. You know, when you have the big meeting and everyone comes together, you should have had loads of little meetings behind. You should know what everybody else's dialogue is going to be so that you can start knitting together the similarities that people have so that everyone understands they're on the same team. These projects have a dedicated ethos to them because everyone needs to know where we're going. And if you can bring your team back to this is why we're doing it, generally confrontation is less heated and then it just becomes a discussion and that's helpful. You don't want to work with someone that you agree with all the time. Well, I don't. Well, I'm going to bring you to something you said to me when we last uh, spoke and that was saying you have a high tolerance for the unknown. Now, unknown Mm. makes some people incredibly nervous, including my clients. So is that something you've always had, a high tolerance for the unknown? I don't know if I've always had it, to be perfectly honest. I, you never know what bits of your life have affected you in what way. When you look back, you're just like, oh, okay. Um, I was sick when I was 19. I was waiting for my kidney transplant. I had to go on to dialysis. but. I never really knew what was coming next. Um, My body just got lupus, um, just kept throwing stuff at me that I had to deal with. So I think that probably helped me to think about the fact that you can only affect the things you can affect, which is an expression that means everything and nothing all at the same time. There's no point worrying about the things you can't 
effect. So put your energy into something where you feel that you can make a difference. So for me, again, going back to being keen to make decisions, you're never going to know all the answers to everything. So make a reasonable assumption. And if you don't feel able to, there will be someone else who will be able to fill that knowledge for you and say to you, this is a reasonable assumption. Make it, make the decision, move on. And if something goes wrong a bit later on, you can always go back and say, actually, was that assumption right? Or should we have made that slightly higher, slightly lower, you know, more green, more blue, whatever, you know, whatever your parameters are. But I like to label my unknowns, put a pin in them and then move on. Um, I'm an 80% kind of gal. If it feels about 80% right, if, it, if in my gut it feels right, then I will go on and make it work. And if I have to come back and adjust things, then I will. But again, it's it's much better in my experience to make a decision and move forward with it rather than try and get all the detail right at this very point to find out whether or not it can go forward. Because quite often these things tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies. And if you dig into it, wondering whether or not it's going to work, then there's a high probability it won't. Whereas if you know it's going to work and you find solutions to make this bit better, then you've got a much better chance of making it work. And you talked about um, gut reactions and going with your, what your gut is telling you. What does your gut tell you? What is, what's your gut talking to you about? Oh, I don't know. It's just one of those feelings when you're just like, when you get excited about something, you're like, do you know, I, I know I'm doing something positive for the world. I know that this is a good thing. I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel a physical thing, a physical sort of tension within my stomach where it's just like, oh, okay. And it just, it sort of drives me towards, I need to go and do this next thing. I want to know how it turns out and I need to, and I've only got a limited patience. So if I don't kick it off then and there, (laughs) I'll have wandered off onto something else. (laughs) So yeah, but it is, it's a really strong feeling, but it, it is mostly about legacy. I just, I want to leave the world in a better place than when I arrived and I know that's really hard. And so there's no point making all the easy decisions. Instead, you've got to try and push for something radical. And if it gets dialed back a little, so it's not quite as radical, but it's still a change. And that's awesome. And when we had a chat last week, I think I said to you, you're probably one of the most confident people I've ever met. <laughs> Do you label yourself that? Do you think you are really confident? Well, it depends on what setting. At work, yep, absolutely. At home, no. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but at work, yeah, it's kind of fake it till you make it, though. You know, I was a young blonde woman in a male-dominated industry. Um, people quite often assumed I was the receptionist. And because I sat on the end of the row, <laughs> used to hand me bits of paper and be like, no, no. Um, if you want your voice heard then, you know, faking it is awesome. Everyone's seen the TED Talks with the the, the power poses and um, the bite a pencil uh, for a minute and your face is convinced that you've been smiling. You know, there are all sorts of ways to force yourself to feel in a particular way. Uh, But also there are loads of ways of looking at whatever situation you're in 
as a positive. When I started dialysis, I don't know what happened to me that I flicked a switch in my head. And instead of going, oh, my goodness, I am really sick. This is terrible. It was like, right, okay, we started the new treatment. The doctors realized how sick I am. So this is it. We're, we're taking the next step. And I got really positive about it. And I, when I, I look from where I am now, if I look back, I feel very sad for that person. But that person was not sad when she was going through it. So, yeah, I, I am confident. But I think I'm, I'm confident because I love what I do. And I really want to make a difference. And I believe I can. So we know you've got a gut that speaks to you, but do you also have a critical voice, um, a little <laughs> noise <laughs> and irritation? Do you have one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope everyone does as well. Uh, I do. But I suppose I actually, on Lennox Point and on some of my other big projects, mostly they work together you know this is a I know rationally this is the right thing and it's a gut feel that it's the right thing so that's really I suppose when I become this kind of force to be reckoned with and woe betide you trying to slow me down I then operate under this (laughs) uh proceed until apprehended I heard someone say it once and I was like, yes, that is it. Proceed until apprehended. So if you want to say no, no problem, but get it into the writing and you better have some authority behind you um, because otherwise this is it. We're going for it. So I have that. However, I will worry about the fact that my boss said something to me and because my boss is very detailed and he said something to me And now I feel that I haven't been paying attention to the detail of another project. It's not where my skills lie. And I, you know, I don't, I can rationalize it later and be like, no, 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 that's right. But no, I'll be like, oh God, all my peers are doing this. They're all so much better at this. I'm just faffing around and talking to people and I'm not really getting work done. You know, so I have all of those worries in my own head. And how do you silence that voice? (laughs) um lots of chocolate um no I sometimes you just can't sometimes it's just there and you just have to accept that it's one of those things that's going to bicker away in the background you have to just ignore it be like I'm I'm busy so I'm not listening to that right now because I've got this to focus on um that helps a lot um but I have also worked on emotional resilience and do a thing called uh, Positive Intelligent Quotient, which is uh, a chap called um, Shazad, totally forgotten his surname. And he's got a TED Talk as well, but about doing small things to bring you back into your left brain so you can balance. And that's really, really helped me. So, yeah, it's there. Sometimes it's helpful. I, again, it's the same as conflict, isn't it? You've got to listen to it, see whether or not it's got any reasoning behind it. If it hasn't got any reasoning behind it, let's put that down and we'll worry about that later because we're very busy thinking about this thing over here and people need me. So, yeah. I ask this to all my guests. Do you feel that confidence is nature, so it's just who you are, or is it nurture? No, it's nurture. Um hundred <laughs> uh, percent. I was not a confident person at school at all. I moved to schools quite a lot. I got bullied quite a lot. 
because I moved schools quite a lot. And I just didn't know how to make those lasting friendships. When I went to college, everything felt a bit different um, because I'd gone from these smaller schools into this enormous college where I could start making friends with people. When I went to university, I just made a choice. I'm like, right, I'm going to own this place. And I was just astonished at how easily people were like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. You're the leader, are you? Awesome. Where are we going? And I just took it. And people were happy for me to take it. And that's what I've carried on doing. (laughs) I just, I don't think that this is a natural thing for me. It's just, I don't really want to do what anyone else has told me to do. So I might as well set the rules myself. (laughs) But you must have gone through some reflection because you've said, you know, at school you were very different, but at university, Mm. this was your moment. I mean, do you reflect on that period? I don't think so. I think I just got sick of being the bottom of the pack and thought something's got to change. I have this brand new start. No one knows me at university. No one knows that I used to be the kid that was that sat on her own every lunchtime. No one knows all of those things. So I was just like, well, let's just go in. Like, hi, guys, you're welcome. And it worked. And so I just carried on doing it. (laughs) And people still seem to be pleased to see me. (laughs) Um, I mean, at some point or another, we'll probably realise this has all been a horrible mistake. But um, again, I will wait for someone to tell me that in writing (laughs) with some authority behind them. Because you also said to me last week, um, you wing it confidently. And I'm going to challenge you on that. I don't think you do. I think you know exactly what you're doing. Challenge me back on that. I mean, uh, I don't have a long term plan other than world domination. Obviously, it's on the list. But I don't have a long term. I don't know how I'm going to get to these places. I look for opportunities and I take them. And I don't mean that just personally I mean that in the projects and I mean that for my staff I, I I'm constantly looking for ways that people, we can expand what we're doing and so you know and like I said with the unknowns to be there and say right well, okay well what's what's the standard thing well house prices will normally go up by 10% right well let's make it 25 and then let's carry on from there I don't know I've, I've just you know finger in the air I I just Yeah, I just feel like if you're going to say, if you're going to be a leader and you're going to make decisions that other people base their decisions on, you have to have some confidence about you. But I'm also aware that I don't know the answer to a lot of things, which is why I'm so lucky to be able to surround myself with teams of experts who can support me. But someone has to be the one who says, this is what we're doing. And that's me. And then there are sometimes that I will have that information and I'll say, okay, well, based on the information we've got, this is what we're going to do. There are other times where I'm like, no, this is what feels right. So this is the way that we're going to go. Unless you can come back and tell me otherwise, this is what we're doing. Yeah, that's that's basically it. Like with the speaking stuff, I just thought it would be nice to start speaking. So I called up a couple of people who've said, yes, it would be nice if you spoke. I mean, I genuinely still astonished that anyone wants to listen to me and the number of LinkedIn requests I get after I speak with people coming up with answer questions about I'm trying to do this how do I do that I'm just 
well, this is what I would do, but, you know, give it a go. Feedback, if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. <laughs> if you go in confidently, generally speaking, I've found people don't tell you no. They kind of assume that you know more than they do. <laughs> and so you, they let you away with it. So you tell me you're, uh, you've got a high tolerance for the unknown. Do you know what's next for you? What are your future plans? No. Um, I'm fairly sure I'm up for a move at some point in the next year or so. I don't know where. I do know that whatever it is, is a position that makes me feel like I have the ability to help more people. So maybe it's consultancy. Maybe it is being able to tell other people how to do the things that I have done and see whether or not we can start a mini revolution of improving the built environment. But I don't know yet. See, this is confidence. I don't know yet whether or not anyone will pay me for that skill. (laughs) So that's partly what's stopping me from going off and just being like, right, come on, guys, (laughs) this is what we should do. But I don't know, maybe I should just wing it confidently and see if uh, people want to pay me. (laughs) Well, you've done well so far winging it confidently. And then just finally, as we wrap up, what's your one piece of advice to all these ambitious females that are listening on how you can appear confident or be confident? Deep breath. Always center yourself. And then ask a question. If you're in any way nervous about a statement, turn it into a discussion. Because discussions are really how you can escalate your thinking and other people's opinion of the way that you think. Also, look around you in meetings. Quite often you'll see people who are a similar age or have similar sorts of experience to you. They don't know more than you. They're just winging it more confidently than you are. So take a deep breath, say what you need to say, ask the question. And if that still feels like too much, go and speak to the people that you thought had pertinent comments during the meeting, after the meeting, start off a conversation behind closed doors, and they will bring you into the conversation at some point when you're back in the meeting but then you will have been invited in by someone knowledgeable and do you have a mentor I do a completely unofficial mentor but yes I I do yeah he's um he's been my boss twice now (laughs) um and he just thinks in a similar way to me and he thinks he's ruthless but he's not. He's got a really big heart and he helps people and he's well connected. And I really like that about him. And a couple of times when I've had an interview for something, I've phoned him up and I've said to him, look, I don't need anything rational from you right now. What I need is a pep talk. I need you to just big me up. Tell me that I'm brilliant before I go in and tell other people that I'm brilliant because at the moment I don't feel brilliant. And he's been able to do that for me. And we've always had great conversation even when I was really junior and he was the MD so 
yeah, it's he's he's a very nice man that I've now known for 15 years. And he's still my go to person if I get a bit stuck. And what do you think the benefits are of having a mentor or a sponsor? Just someone to bounce ideas off. You don't want someone who gives you answers. That's the key to it. Someone who gives you answers will give you their answers, not your answers. You need to be able to have a good constructive conversation with someone. And you need to if and but and scenario play and you need to just be able to bounce ideas to get your head clear because sometimes your gut stays very, very quiet. And But by starting to talk about things, you will definitely know the things you don't like, maybe before the things that you do like. And sometimes it's just about being able to say them out loud. And once you've said them out loud, you're like, yes, this is what I want. And then it makes it easier to do that. And do you mentor anybody? Uh, well, unofficially. Yeah, I think I've got about three people who speak to me about where they're going to go and what they want to do and how they want to do it. Not all in my industry, but I have regular conversations with with quite a few, which is lovely, really, really, really nice. And again, sometimes I'm like, well, if you're asking me, then nothing. <laughs> but um, but it's it's really nice to hear what they're thinking, what they're going through. And what do you get out of that relationship? Ideas, energy, enthusiasm, the ability to help someone, give someone a leg up if I can, or or connect the dots with the contacts that will help someone else. It's it's usually about a human connection, isn't it? It's normally that kind of thing of, uh, you know, I can't help you, but actually there's a guy over there. I know he'll be brilliant for you. So I'll connect you guys up and... And also there's a couple of people that I know who I just can't wait to see where their career is going to take them. The one thing we haven't done, Natasha, uh, and I should have probably done this right at the beginning, was you didn't actually tell me where your project is. You've given me the name, but you haven't told me where it is. (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's in Portsmouth in the UK. And uh, I actually work for the council there. So which is an added little bonus of the way that I work is that I'm... I'm having to work with public sector money as well. So I'm having to be careful with that. So it's more audacious idea to be doing this with public sector money. But yeah, Lennox Point, Google it. <laughs> and you've got 10 seconds to tell people what's so amazing about Portsmouth. Portsmouth is the only island city in the UK. And it's essentially from anywhere you are, it's a 15 minute cycle ride to the sea. It also has more hours of sunlight than any other city in the UK, according to the architects. But it's well connected. It's flat. The views are beautiful. And yeah, it's hugely well connected with trains, roads and ferries. I used to work in Portsmouth for many years, so I know it very well. Very fond of it indeed when I was in the Royal Navy. So, um, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on uh, Women in Confidence. It's been great having you on here. Um, you are still the most confident person I've uh, spoken <laughs> to, even if your inner critic and your gut is telling you something completely different. You absolutely are. And I would love to have you back when the what next happens. I would love that. It'd be great if you would come back. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, no, I would just definitely come back. It's been it's 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 a really nice confidence boost coming on here and being told I'm confident. <laughs> double whammy (laughs) absolutely (laughs) all right lovely thank you so much no problem at all thank you so much for listening to women in confidence and i hope you enjoyed it if you did then please like it share it comment on it and if you want to sponsor it 
If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time. Thank you.